chapter 13. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse for, well, it was so far a year and a couple of months. And um, we come to a portion of Scripture where Jesus is asked about things regarding the future, future events, prophecy. And it's interesting because on Sunday nights we're going through a series about end times. And uh, tonight we'll continue that series. Really, one of, I believe one of the most strategic passages of Scripture tonight we'll deal with in Daniel, where Daniel gives us basically a timeline about the 70 weeks and where we get the uh, teaching about the tribulation period, the length of time of the tribulation period. So, But I just say all I just say because this sort of fits into that. And normally, uh, dealing with the passage like Mark chapter 13, I would break it up into several different messages, but because we're covering much of this material on Sunday evenings, we'll look at this as it's presented, which is like an overview, really, of, of some of the highlights, the events that will take place in the future. So we're in Mark chapter 13, and uh, if you're able to stand, stand with us, if you would, for the reading of the scripture, and we'll get right into the word of God together. Just read the first four verses at this time, Mark 13 and 1. And as he went out of the temple, which is a very simple statement, but for those of us who've been on this journey through the Gospel of Mark, we have spent probably a couple of months dealing with teachings and, and incidents, things that happened in that temple area. And so now he's leaving the temple, verse 1. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, See what manner of stones and what buildings are here, commenting on the beauty of the temple. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And I'm sure they were shocked by that as they were just enamored with the wonder, the awe of that fixture, that uh, edifice, the temple there. And then verse 3, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Let's have prayer and we'll get into this text. All right, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd bless as we study it together. We're here, Lord, to hear from you, from your word. We pray that we'd have open hearts, that the soil of our heart would be receptive to the good seed of the word of God. We pray that we'd be open, alert, help us as we go through the material and to rightly divide the word of truth and present it in an understandable way. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, Matthew in his gospel, Matthew chapter 24, and Luke in his gospel both uh, record similar records of what Jesus is about to teach here in Mark chapter 13. And uh, both of them record the disciples and their uh, appreciation of the beauty of the temple both of them record the questions that they ask, basically when are these things going to take place and what should we expect in the future. So we're going to, 
We're going to dive into this in a moment, but I just want to introduce the message by just giving us a few random thoughts about uh, Bible prophecy. Because Bible prophecy, that being things that we read in the Bible that were recorded hundreds and hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years before they happened, those things can be very intriguing, and they are very intriguing and challenging. Uh, but I sometimes one uh, kind of I warn people, caution people about what I th consider two extremes about Bible prophecy or future events. One is people sometimes disregard them because they don't seem practical and applicable to our daily lives or maybe they seem too complex. Some people I've known are totally consumed by them. That's all they want to study and talk about and think about is things that in prophecy and, and it's not always easy to follow. And if you, even if you read in the prophets, my wife and I have been reading in the book of Ezekiel uh, for some time now. But if you read in Daniel, we'll talk about Daniel's prophecy tonight. If you read in Isaiah, any of these prophets, Jeremiah, as you're reading these prophets, and I'm saying this for a reason, they may be writing about things that are happening now. They may be writing about things that happened to Israel in the past. They may be writing about things that are going to happen when Jesus comes back, and they may even be writing about things that are going to happen in the millennial reign. All these things you could find just reading through one book of the Bible. And I'm sure you've seen that and often said, well, how do you put all the pieces together? And prophecy is that way. And uh, seldom, as a matter of fact, maybe never, are all these inspired writings, and this will make sense as we go through the message, the lesson here in a moment, they're never laid out in all, with all the details and chronological order, it just doesn't exist in the Bible. It's not to confuse us, but it helps us be motivated to study the Bible and compare spiritual things with spiritual. And so I think the more we read and study, the more the pieces of the puzzle we understand and the more the big picture becomes clearer, if that makes sense to you. And, uh, and I think I, I look at prophecy, and I think that's a good analogy is like a puzzle and uh, I don't have all the pieces personally put together in my own mind. I've been reading and studying this Bible for a long time. I don't have every piece in place. But when you, you know, when you put a, piece, a puzzle together, if you're like our family is, you have a strategy. And the first thing you do is you put the border pieces, their outline pieces together. Those are the easiest pieces. And then you put the pieces together that seem like they would be easier, the things like if there's a windmill in it or if there's a horse in it, you take those little things, you put them together, and the more you put all these things together, then other pieces start to seem to fall together in the picture, and the picture becomes more clear, and it can take a while to see the complete, complete picture. Well, that's the way it is with prophecy, and this text is a good example of it. You know, when you read here in Mark chapter 13, the disciples are talking about the beauty in verse 1 of the temple. And Jesus tells them in verse 2, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be one, left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now he's not into his discussion about future events too much, but he's telling them something that's going to happen in the future. The interesting thing is what he's telling them about, the temple being thrown down and destroyed and stones being scattered, that's going to happen in some of their lifetime. That happened by the Romans that destroyed, conquered, and destroyed Jerusalem 
and tore down the temple. That was in 70 A.D. under Titus. So that's a future event, but it's a future event that's going to happen within a few decades. And so then when he said that in verse 2, then they asked him in verse 3 and 4 about a timeline. When shall these things be? And what, verse 4, what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? In Matthew's gospel, he said, he records, what shall be the sign of, the coming, of thy coming and the end of the world? So they're asking him about what's going to happen in the future. And we're going to look at that together now. But, but to, back to my earlier point. We're going to read this, but there are going to be a lot of things that are going to happen in the future that aren't recorded here. There's nothing in Mark chapter 13 about the rapture of the saints. We talked about that on a Sunday night a couple of weeks ago. There's nothing in, in this about the marriage of the Lamb. We talked about that last Sunday night. There's nothing in this about the mark of the beast. We'll be talking about it about a future lesson. There's nothing about the battle of Armageddon. There's nothing about the rebuilding of the temple or the 144,000 witnesses or the great white throne judgment. So everything's not in here is my point. You get it? So you take what's here. We're going to take what's here is like a is like an overview of the things that lie ahead, but it doesn't include everything. So this is over 2,000 years ago. Jesus gives us this picture, this panoramic of what's in store for the world. So what did he say to them in these passages? Well, as I said earlier, he talked to them about the destruction of the temple, and then um, he's going to tell them about a lot of other things. And honestly, I don't know what all they were thinking, and you don't know what all they were thinking, but I imagine that when he started off by saying, the thing you're looking at right now that you think is so beautiful is going to be totally destroyed, I think it probably set them back a little bit, you know, to think about the things that were going to happen. But that was only the, that's only the beginning of it. The destruction of the temple is only the beginning of it. The truth of the matter is, Jesus is going to lay this out, the world is on a collision course with the judgment of God. And that's going to happen. And that's what much of this we're writing about is about. We live in a world, we live in a world that's filled with chaos. And many people live with the false understanding that somehow if we just make a few better decisions politically and otherwise, economically and otherwise, we'll, we'll make this world a whole lot better. The truth of the matter is, this world is going to be destroyed. And we don't know exactly when, but it's, it's not going to be a pretty picture. And I think, it, this is my personal opinion, I think 2020 has got, given us like a snapshot of, of how life is so fragile and our plans can be so disrupted and we don't even have a thing to do or say about it. Think of, you, we've already covered this ground, but imagine what has happened to us that in just a matter of days, the whole world can basically be shut down. International trade comes to a screeching halt. Uh, businesses are shuttered. Personal liberties are stripped. The government control begins to escalate. We're, we're watching this happen before us. And that's, what's gonna, that's what the future looks like. So if you're sitting here thinking, please tell me that there's some utopia right around the corner and Jesus is going to promise it to us, it's not in the Bible. It's just not there. So what about these natural disasters? What about these hurricanes? What about these raging fires and politicians who 
tell us that these calamities can be curtailed or maybe stopped if we can just make some environmental changes. It's not so. It's just not so. So, Jesus is going to give us here in these verses some details that will help people understand what the future looks like. And I want to, I want to, I want to go way into the text and then come back. But look, if you would, please, in verse 26 of Mark chapter 13. And he says here, And when they shall see, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now that's not the coming in the clouds in the rapture to take us to heaven. That's him coming to this earth to set up his kingdom. And we're going to talk more about that as we move along. But, but all these other things are going to happen before he comes in, in this text, in verse 26, at the latter stage of the great tribulation. And that appearance will not be um, missed by anyone. We talked about this the other day. The whole world's going to see it. He'll come in great power and glory. So what are the things we have to look forward to? Look in verse 5. And we're just going to hit these places uh, briefly and kind of move through this passage but verse 5 and 6 talks about a time of great deception. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So deception is not new, right? Deception has been around since the Garden of Eden. When Eve was deceived and Adam disobeyed. But deceptions are going to play a major role in the present and future world. False teachers false Christs, false messiahs, false religions, false hope. Could be Islam, could be Catholicism, could be humanism, could be socialism, could be Hinduism, all these isms, but there's a lot of deception. And it's not just in the cults. There's great deception even among religions considered Christian religions. Great deception. And it's a, it's a, it's a characteristic of the future. Matter of fact, Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and he said, evil men and seducers, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. A lot of, you know, there's been so much more, there's so much more deception in my lifetime now than there was when I was a teenager. It's just going to continually escalate and get worse. Not only is deception is something uh, that's a trademark or uh, in of future days, but look in verses 7 and 8. He says, And when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet, for nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. That doesn't sound like worldwide peace to me, does it, you? Kingdom against kingdom, all these international conflicts, wars, and rumors of wars. But one of the things I'll just insert and then move on related to these rumors of wars, is there going to become someone come on the scene in the future who will be a man of peace? And Paul wrote about this to the church in Thessalonica and said, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them. And, you know, all these Middle East promises of peace have, are great, have great interest to me because that's one of the things that's going to be characteristic because I believe the Antichrist... When he comes, he's going to make this um, covenant with Israel promising peace. 
and, uh, but it won't last for long. Another thing he writes about here in verse 8 are um, all these earthquakes in divers places, and there shall be famines and troubles. Earthquakes, famines, and troubles. And Matthew and Luke, they include pestilences in this list. Pestilences are like plagues. Pestilences are some of the things that are going to get worse and worse. And uh, the corona is an example of how you can have a worldwide pestilence and affect not just a local area, not just one country, but it affects the whole world. And um, so it's, it's, I say again that uh, the kind of fear that has been propagated by this pandemic is what's going to govern the world in the days ahead. Matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said this, men's hearts failing them for fear. And then another thing that we mentioned periodically, the last part of verse 8, Jesus said, these are the beginnings of sorrows. These are the beginnings of sorrows. It's like the, these are like the first mild contractions of birth pains, what we're seeing. And so I, I hope you understand this. These are, it's not like turning on a faucet. It's not like all of a sudden things are great. You turn on the faucet and the world comes apart. These are things that are just going to continually grow like birth pains. And they're going to just continue to intensify and become more frequent. And, it's, and I, I just say this because I care about those who hear this. It's foolish to think that things are always going to be getting better. The good news is that we're going to be out of here, those of us who are saved, before many of these things take place. And we can thank God for that. Another thing he writes about is persecution. Verse 9, But take heed to yourselves, he says to these people, for they shall deliver you up to councils. That's like religious persecution. And in the synagogues you shall be beaten. Now he's writing to Jewish people. And he's writing about things that are going to happen in the great tribulation. And I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff out there, but the great tribulation, the primary purpose of it, along with judging the sin of the world, is to specifically deal with the nation of Israel who has rejected the Messiah. And so he's writing to them. He said, they're going to, they're going to beat you in the synagogues, and you should be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. You'll be persecuted religiously. You'll be persecuted for the, by the Gentiles for a testimony against them. And then verse 11 says... And when they shall lead you up and deliver you up, take no thought before that you shall speak, neither premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak you, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother, now this is persecution within families. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. So it's going to be a time of great persecution, something we in this room and in this country know very little about. There'll be, there'll be all kinds of persecution, even among family. Matter of fact, if you look in uh, verse 13, it says, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. You're gonna be, be hated of all men. When a person is a follower of Jesus, everyone will be their enemy. That's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? That's persecution on a major scale. But God promises grace here. He'll give us the words to say and, and people who are living at that time. And then um, 
Another thing that we see here is it says in verse 10, the gospel must first be published among all nations. That's interesting to me that in, in sandwiched between a warning about how persecution is going to exist among the religious crowd and then how re- persecution is going to happen among um, the Gentiles and then how persecution is going to happen among families, he said the gospel must be preached to all nations. So even in the midst of all this persecution, our, our job assignment, if, if we were alive at this time, and their job assignment would be to get the gospel out. And, and by the way, we've talked about this recently, um, how that knowing that we're living in the last days, it ought to be an incentive for us to do more than, more than we've ever done to get the gospel out, to get the message out to people who desperately need to know the Lord. So the gospel we preached to all nations. That brings us to verse 14, which is such an important and pivotal verse. And I said to you, we're just going to kind of give an overview today. But this verse 14, let's just look at this briefly together. It says, but when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. In parentheses there. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains and let him that is on the housetop not go down into his house, neither enter therein to take anything out of the house. Don't even go into your house and get what you have belonging to you. And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child and to those that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created until this time neither shall be. Just read a little further there. And except that the the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. And then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there. Believe him not, for false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. But in those days, after that tribulation, so let's just stop right there. So what's he talking about in verse 14 when he talks about the abomination of desolation? And... This, this is talking about the blasphemous reign of the Antichrist. And several things that we'll talk about tonight will take place. And one of those, these things, and, this, and by the way, that's in the middle of the tribulation. One of the great timelines we have in prophecy is that the Bible says, and we could look at this in Daniel in more than one place, we could look at it in Revelation, that... that when this happens, after this happens, there'll be 40, it'll be for a period of 42 months. Daniel says it's in the midst of the seventh week. So right in the middle of the seven weeks of great tribulation, the Antichrist is going to discontinue the sacrifices in the temple, and which brings up the obvious question is when will the temple be built? And I think the temple will be built during the first half of the tribulation period. And right in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist will cease those, those sacrifices and he will establish himself as deity, as God. That's, that's why it's called the, the abomination of desolation 
That's the, and we see that language in Daniel. We see it in 2 Thessalonians. Halfway through the tribulation period, and this marks the beginning of the worst part of the tribulation. And if you're reading the book of Revelation, which we'll cover on Sunday evening some of that, this horrific tribulation will be directed primarily to the people of Israel so that they will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And they will. Many of them will. So this abomination of desolation is such an important thing, such an important event to think about. I'm not going to ask you to turn to it, but I want to read two verses from Daniel chapter 9. First of all, 27 it says, And he, talking about the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many. He'll make a, he's going to make a covenant with the people of Israel. And I'm throwing so many things out there, but I want to get through this today. But part of that covenant, we'll see this tonight, will be over the land. And that's what we see in the news all the time. This dispute about the, the place of the temple and the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim place of worship that sits near where the temple once stood. But that temple is going to be rebuilt. And, and he's going to make a covenant, I believe, having to do with, the land, with, with Jerusalem, with the land. But in the midst of that, it says in verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9, for he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, for seven years, and in the midst of the week, Daniel says, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Daniel wrote about that many hundreds of years before Christ. I'll give you one other verse in Daniel, chapter 12, it says this, and from that time, from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be 2,290 days. So there'll be a period of, figure it up, three and a half years. Half the time of that seven years of tribulation. So this verse 14 in our text, that is such a critical place to think about this abomination of desolation and as bad as the persecution is up until that time, it's really going to intensify greatly after that. Again, those of us who are saved will not be on the earth at that time. Now, there will be some people saved during the tribulation period. We talked about that on a recent Wednesday night. So let's look at our Bibles here and continue in verse 24 of Matthew or Mark chapter 13. But in those days after that tribulation... The sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her a light. That's spoken of in the book of Revelation and also, I think, in the book of Joel. And the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Jesus is going to return. And then he shall he send his angels. And he won't be sending his angels at the rapture. He's going to be sending his angels here and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. So the big moment is going to be when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds. And it's going to be a great thing. And we're going to, when he comes, we're going to be with him, those of us who are saved. He'll be coming. He'll be coming not as a babe in a manger, not as a humble servant, but riding on a white horse, king of kings and lord of lords. He'll come to judge. This is what Revelation says, to judge and to make war. He'll destroy his enemies, Revelation 19, with the word of his mouth. He'll smite the nations. Hallelujah. 
and rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. God, aren't you? I am so glad today that God is long-suffering, aren't you? That he's patient with us. And he is more than patient with a wicked world that rejected and crucified his son, that, that disregards his commandments, that lives and mocks and blasphemes as though he's not, that he's not real or he doesn't exist. And, he, and they think because God withholds his judgment that God doesn't care or that maybe God doesn't, just, doesn't exist, but one day he's going to come and he's going to tread upon this earth again and the wrath of Almighty God against sin will be witnessed firsthand. And people say, well, God shouldn't be so mean. God is nothing but good. God is nothing but good. Then we read in verse 28. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So ye in like manner. And that's true. You know, if you're, if you're looking at a Fig trees are very common in Israel as well as olive trees. And the fig tree itself, we could turn to passages in Scripture where fig trees used. Jesus used the fig tree as an illustration of his people, the nation of Israel. And so when you see these things happening, leaves are forming on the fig trees, you know that summer is near, it's nigh. Verse 29, so in like manner, just in that same way, when you shall see these things come to pass, Know that it is nigh even at the doors. When people see this, now we read, I, I re, read this, I see this with a lot of fascination, with a lot of appreciation. I read it with, with a lot of uh, gratitude to God for prophecy and Him foretelling and writing things down. I mean, this is coming to pass before our eyes. These things were written over 2,000 years ago. What a great God, an all wise God that we know and serve and love. And I read it with all this, but I'm thinking about what it would be like for a person who knows these things when these things are happening right before them. Especially when they see this Antichrist sitting upon the, in, the, in the temple, declaring himself to be God. Jesus said, when you see all these things happen, then he said, verse 30, Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. And that's a verse of scripture that uh, has caused people a lot of uh, interest and, and speculation over the years. And, and there's probably more to it than I would understand. But when I just look at the bare facts of what we've just said, this, this chapter 13 and verse 14, where the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of, when he, when he stops the sacrifices, establishes himself as a false deity, as false God, at that point, there's only three and a half years left until the end of the great tribulation and the coming of Christ. So these people, when they see this, they know it's happening. It's, this is, it's imminent. It's about to take place. And um, so that's the lesson of the fig tree. Then that brings us to verse 32. Jesus says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. And then he begins to give some, some insight, some advice, some counsel for those who are seeing these things take place. 
Take heed, he says in verse 13. Take heed means pay attention. Take heed, watch and pray. For you know not when the time is. And he gives in one verse um, a summary of a parable that's taught numerous places in Matthew and Luke and other places. And that's about the parable of the steward. Let's just read that verse 34. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Now, he's speaking to people who know him, people who are looking for him. It's interesting in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus says this, and he says you need to watch and be ready, and then he says as though he's making it applicable, not just to those who will be alive during this time of great tribulation, but to, the, but to all of his disciples, be also ready. You need to, all of us need to be ready. Now I want you to think about that uh, real seriously for a moment. So what does he say in verse 32? He says, or verse 33, watch and pray. And then he says in verse 35, watch ye therefore, be alert, be looking. For you know not when the master of the house cometh at even or at midnight or at cock crowing or in the morning. You don't know if it's going to be in the middle of the night. You don't know if it's going to be before dawn. You don't know if it's going to be mid-morning. But be watching. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. He says watch. Over and over he says that. Verse 33, watch and pray. Verse 35, watch ye therefore. Verse 37, what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Now that's a, that's a very practical um, application, a very practical responsibility that every one of us should ponder. And that is the importance of watching. Watching for what? Watching for these things to take place. Watching for the Lord to come. We don't know exactly when it is, but he says, take heed, pay attention. And he gives this little brief parable about a, about a landowner. We could, we could say a wealthy landowner who had a great estate and he's going to leave for a period of time. But before he leaves, he gives uh, his servants responsibility. This, I'm going to be gone for a while. This is what I want you to do. Do this, do this, do this. You don't know when he's coming. He never says, I'm going to come back. We would say, well, when are you going to come back? You know, give us a calendar. We're going to, just like when, you know, company's coming, you know, when they're, you want to know when they're going to get, when do I have to clean the house? You want to know when they're going to get there? And Jesus said, just keep the house clean. <laughs> be working. Be serving. He's not here right now, but he's coming. What are we to do while we wait? We're not to hunker down in some bunker somewhere and try to hang in with it. No, we're to be busy, being busy about his business. He says, watch, be ready. Keep working, keep looking, keep expecting. You know, it's, I think it's, a, it's a, probably a given that most of us would agree with that, that we could leave this service today thinking about these words of Jesus and say, you know, I need to take that serious. I need to be watching. I need to be alert. I need to be expecting him to come. By the way, he could come at any moment. 
Not, not in the coming here that we read about when he's coming in great judgment at the end of the great tribulation, but when he comes to take us to heaven with him, the saints at the rapture of believers, he could come at any moment. So we could leave here thinking, boy, that's true. We need to be ready. But the reality sinks in, and then in a few days we're thinking about it less, in a few weeks we're thinking about it less, in a few months we may not be thinking about it at all. It's, it takes discipline to think about this, but that's, that's what we need to be doing. We're not going to change any of the things we read about in this passage, but I'll tell you one thing we could change, and that is that we're going to be, we're going to determine by the grace of God that he could come tomorrow, and we're going to be ready. When he comes, we're going to be alert. We're going to be watching. We're going to be working. I love that hymn we sing sometimes, we'll work till Jesus comes, we'll work. So I ask the question today, are you ready? Not are you planning to get ready someday, but are you ready right now where you sit? Are you satisfied that everything in your life is right with God, that if he came today, it wouldn't, be a, it, it wouldn't take, catch you off guard, it wouldn't, you wouldn't be ashamed, you wouldn't, you wouldn't regret that you've not been living the way you ought to live? Are you ready? First of all, are you saved? If you're not saved, you are not ready. If you're not saved and you're alive when Jesus comes at the rapture to take us away, if you're not saved, everybody that's saved is going to leave this planet faster than you can bat an eye and you're going to be left here. And you're not just going to be left here alone. You're going to be left here with the reality that I should have made my life ready. Are you saved? If you're not saved, you need to be saved. You need to trust Christ. You need to come with him in genuine repentance. And put your faith and trust in Christ. You ought to do that today. You say, well, preacher, I'm saved. If he comes, I'm saved. You know, you can be saved and still not be ready. If you're not faithfully serving him. This, this thing about these servants wasn't that we're just going to sit around and whittle and, you know, drink sweet tea until, G until the servant comes. No, we're going to be serving. When he comes, he expects us to find us serving. Working, right? That's what the Bible says. And, and, and again, we can't control all these other things, but we can control this. I'm going to do what I know the Lord wants me to do. When I get up in the morning, get ready to go to work, go to whatever it is you do during the day, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to be a faithful witness. I'm going to be true to the Lord, and I'm going to be expecting him to come. That's the way I'm going to live my life. Otherwise, we're not going to be ready. You know, verse 34, he says that. He gave authority to his servants and to every man his work. Your work is not my work. My work is not your work. But every man has a work. And we're to be doing it when he comes. So, the, so with all these things we're looking at, the, the, the most important thing to me of all this, and I mean this, the most important thing to me of all that we talk about, all these events, all these calamities, all these uh, catastrophic events. The thing that's most important is I want to be ready when he comes. Are you ready? Is your family ready? Are your children ready? So as we think about this matter of prophecy, um, it's interesting. It's intriguing. And it's, and I promise you, you already know this. But we don't even have to wonder whether it's going to happen the way he said it's going to happen because it will happen 
the way he said it's going to happen. It always does, right? We may not even fully understand it, but that has nothing to do with it. It's going to happen the way he said it's going to happen, and when he wants it to happen, it's going to happen. But there is something that we do have control over, and that's how we're going to live our life and how we're going to be ready when he comes. And if you're sitting here today and you're not saved, you're, you're gambling with your eternal soul. Or if you're thinking, well, one of these days I'm going to get serious about serving God. One of these days I'm going to get ready. Then, you miss the, then you're, dis, you're dismissing or missing the whole point that Jesus finished this powerful presentation with, and that is be ready. Make sure you're ready. And today would be a good day to say, Lord, I want to be ready. I'm going to quit squandering my time and, and be procrastinating. I'm going to get serious so that when he comes, I think he's going to come in my lifetime. I can't. You say, well, why would you think that? Because I've been thinking that. For 45 years I've been thinking that. And I still think it. You know what? Paul thought it too. He thought he would come in his lifetime. I'm not saying I'm like Paul. I'm just saying we ought to live like he could come at any moment. Amen? Let's bow our heads together for prayer. I would assume, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I would assume there are people thinking, boy, I wish we could have spent more time on this chapter and broke it down into more detail. Well, we're doing that on Sunday nights, and I don't want to do two things the same at the same time. But today, I want us to think about the fact that Jesus is coming. And this world, this world, this sin-cursed world, was never intended to be a place that we would want to be forever because he's going to judge this world. We're preparing for another world. A city whose builder and maker is God. So as we think about that today, ask yourself, am I ready? Am I ready? And if you're not today, why don't you say, I'm going to get ready. Starting right now, this morning, I'm going to get ready.